So what's their secret? For my travels, it seems that most Italians just seem to know how to live well, and that includes enjoying some of the best food on the planet. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, our guest sees Italian cuisine as a tasty rack upon which to hang an understanding and an appreciation of that fascinating and fun-loving culture. Fred Plotkin joins us in the hour ahead to help us better understand why being in touch with the seasons makes such a difference in bringing pleasure to everyday life, just like they do in Italy. If you put your five senses to good work all the time, you develop a sixth sense, and that's instinct. Fred's Gourmet Guide to Italy is freshly out in a revised edition, and he'll share some of the tricks to eating and living like they do in Italy. And we'll check in with a few of our listeners about experiencing the good life in Italy later in the hour. We're embracing the good life Italian style. Glad you can join us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Anybody can go to Italy, but not anybody can really understand the Italian culture. Today, we're going to look at Italy from a cuisine point of view and using cuisine as an entree into that rich culture. And I'm joined by a connoisseur of Italian cuisine and a man who's passionate about really connecting with Italian culture through its cuisine, and he's Fred Plotkin. Fred writes The Definitive Guide to Italian Cuisine. It's the new fifth edition, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, thanks for joining us. Buongiorno, Riccardo. Come va? Molto bene, te? Mm, very good, thank you. <laughs> that's, where my, <laughs> that's where my Italian runs out. But I do know who Garibaldi is, and you call yourself a Garibaldi with a fork, and you think we should all be Garibaldis with a fork. What do you mean by that? Well, Garibaldi is the man who united the nation of Italy, and he did that by traveling to every little town and hamlet. The way we always say George Washington slept here, Garibaldi slept almost everywhere in Italy, and I've eaten almost everywhere in Italy. So he put his head down on pillows, and I put my fork into a bowl in every little hamlet you can think of. So you're talking about just have an adventurous spirit and connect with this concept of campanilismo. Campanilismo. Campanile means the bell tower. And in Italy, every little town has a church with a bell tower. And you are connected to that town if you live within earshot and with view of the bell tower. So that if I live in Parma and I see and hear my bell tower, that is my identity. The food of Parma, the dialect of Parma, the music of Parma would be what I connect to. And I, I mentioned Parma because I was there in October of 2009 and there was a lightning storm that hit the bell tower and destroyed the top of it. And people took that as a signal that they better get right with Parma. And they began rebuilding the very next day. Bell towers have that much significance to Italians. But what it means is, I am of the place where the bell tower rings. I've heard uh, Italy called the land of a thousand bell towers with that same idea, that people relate you know, to their town more than even to their country. In fact, when Italy was united, what, back in 1870, the famous yes. uh, politicians that did it said, they, they declared, now, well, we've created Italy, now we need to create Italians. And that's a struggle <laughs> to this day, isn't it? It's true. Well, that's why cookbooks come out and, and other things come out that relate to the Italian nation. But really, the only time Italians think of themselves as a nation is when the soccer team plays in the World Cup. And then it really is a united nation. I've been in Belgium, and all of a sudden in Brussels, the Italians won the World Cup, and the whole city seems to be Italian. Every Italian is out on the streets <laughs> just going crazy. Well, there are no Belgians anyway, so... <laughs> That's right. Everybody's combining into that country. But when when we think of the sort of the regional pride and even the village pride, you know, I, I love the five villages of the Italian Riviera, the, the Cinque Terre, and people in each of those villages, even in this modern day and age, they have their own dialect and they're proud of it. And they raise their kids, you know, saying it's pronounced this way, not like in the next town. Uh, this, this hometown pride, they've got the best salami here or the best pasta there. It really is alive and well today in Italy, I think more than other countries. I, I can't uh, get over how my friends in Siena still have a medieval grudge against Florence. Not only that, but in Siena, when they have the polio twice a year in July and in August, the people in the different districts and neighborhoods of Siena don't like one another. <laughs> and when one, like the owl or the fox or whatever the different neighborhoods are called, when one of them wins, people practically have breakdowns with joy because they have won 
and not the people two blocks away. It is wild. And as a traveler, you can be oblivious to that or you can be connected to that. But it, it's really, uh, the onus is on you to, to get clued in to what's going on around you. And that's why it's good to have a, you know, a healthy curiosity and a determination to be prepared to understand this. And that's why I'm pretty excited about Fred's book. Fred's book is out in a new fifth edition, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And uh, I just want to read uh, our little paragraph here and, and get your take on it. This book is a gathering of much of what makes Italy special. My intention was not merely to write a restaurant guide. Here is a book about the sensuality of Italy expressed through its food, wine, and quality of life. More to the point, this is about living Italy, as opposed to all the guidebooks that lead you to the inanimate tourist attractions and stores selling gloves and souvenirs. I want to take you to the Italy that you can see, taste, smell, touch, and hear. Music, flavors, fragrances, beautiful scenery, art, food, and people are all sources of pleasure known in Italy as piacere. While the rest of the world veers to standardization, sterilization, and mass marketing, Italy can still offer much that makes you feel alive, human, and sensual. Much of what is most unique about Italy is the pursuit of pleasure and the skill of Italians to do just this. That's beautiful, Fred. Thank you, and it's heartfelt. You must have had that experience. And to understand that, again, you combine the culture with the way you would actually experience it. And that takes a little bit of uh, skills, I would say. One angle on that, which I like about that you discuss in your book, is Abinamento. Abinamento means pairing, and very strictly it's used in food and wine, but it can go with anything. It's how things go together. Italians, when they look at the world, whether it's in music and food or anything, look at the contrasts, the juxtapositions. Think of one of my favorite Italian words, chiaroscuro, which is referred to in art. Chiaroscuro means light and dark. But it's yin and yang. It's a relationship of two different phenomena. It's understanding that when you see the moon and the bright side, there's the dark side of the moon, too. That is in the Italian character. The Italians know that a good day may be with us now. A bad day might come later. So enjoy this good day because you never know. All of that is why Italians devote themselves to pleasure. It's not hedonism. It's a recognition that good things have been put here for us to enjoy and to make more beautiful and to venerate. You know, that relates to one of my themes or trends as a guidebook writer of steering people to wine bars. And that's where you can get inexpensive small food with expensive glasses of great wine. And I really feel the passion for the proprietor there to match, to pair the food with the wine. What is your um, recommendation on those little eateries? Well, they're called enoteca, mm -hmm. as an enophile for wine. And the person who owns this is called the oste, O-S-T-E, meaning host. And he or she is someone who cultivates relationship with local wine producers, local cheesemakers, and understands how these things go together. As I said, I was in Parma recently, and I was in a place called Bar Mauro. To look at it, it looks like nothing. But then you understand that Mauro, who only has a few pieces of pork and a couple of pieces of cheese in his container, knows that these are the very best, so he doesn't have to offer 100 types. By having five, but knowing that they're all outstanding, and then selecting the wine that he thinks you might like with them, he is being the hoste, the hoste, someone who is looking at the person in front of him and saying, how can I give pleasure to this person with what I know to be good? Now, these guys are experts and they're passionate, and I believe they care about their customers, even if they're just a clueless tourist. What is the name of the establishment again, of Vino? This one is Bar Mauro, but it's an Enoteca, E-N-O-T-E-C-A, Enoteca. Enoteca. And they're all over Italy. I feel it's a, a great economic way to experience top, top class matching of great ingredients and great wine. It's the way Italians eat now. Right. I'm talking with Fred Plotkin, and Fred's new fifth edition of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler is out. And Fred, I love this concept of the sagra, the, the festival celebrating the arrival of seasonal foods. And I think as much as anywhere when you're in Italy, you really got to be clued into what is seasonal. There's something in Italy called the primizia, P-R-I-M-I-Z-I-A. This is the first time you eat a food or ingredient in a year. So when the first cherry or apricot arrives, Italians stop and say a little prayer of thanks 
for the return of the cherry or the apricot, the primizia. Typically, these are full of flavor. They're not as complex as the apricots and cherries that come later, but they're the harbinger of good things to come. They say to you that for this season, however long it might be, a week, two months, you are to enjoy and find every way of exploring the uses of these foods. In Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, they have white asparagus for two months. In Liguria and in Lazio, they have magnificent artichokes for about six weeks. And the Italians know to really dig in for that period because when it's gone, it's gone. So they're sort of inherently going with the season, not struggling with it. They say this is what nature is giving us. And they try not to subvert nature by having things kept in cold storage for a long time so that you could say, yes, I could have an apricot in November, but it won't taste like anything. They know that it's best appreciated when it looks and tastes at its best. It may not be pretty to look at. Mm -hmm. It may be a little mottled, but it will taste like heaven, and that's the primary goal. Now, that's all high ideals when it comes to food, but what is the advent of the modern supermarket? How has that affected local eating habits? You're beginning to see, with Italy being part of the European Union, Euro standardization, and frankly, the European standards are lower than the Italian standards. Hmm. So you will see supermarkets that will have wrapped up pears and, and, and apples especially. And I don't even go there. I don't buy those. I would rather have an apple that was recently picked that I can smell. That's the key thing. My way into food is with my nose. And if I can smell that the apple still taste of the orchard, then that's the apple I want. Okay. This applies to all foods. Now, I feel all over Europe a push and a pull and a tug by globalization, just the undeniable forces of globalization. People say it's a big train, get on it or get run over. How has that need to compete internationally challenged the local wine industry in Italy? I think that Italy is the country that has adapted least well to globalization, and in the long run, that will be a good thing because when everything is standardized, poor little Italy will be left out in that everything will still be typical and local. And people will return to Italy and say, wow, those hazelnuts from Piemonte don't taste like anything I've ever tasted. And those cherries from Vignola and those pumpkins that come from Mantova taste like nothing else. That's because they've not been standardized. This also applies to high fashion. Once the rest of the world all dresses by the same mass producer of jeans and T-shirts, they'll look to Italians and say, what can you show us that we don't know? So I believe in supporting Italy as a nation that is the guardian of classical good taste. So Italian chaos and inability to get its act together with the rest of the world is almost a blessing in disguise then? It should be. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin and Fred's... Uh, Definitive Guide for Italian Food Culture is out. It's Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. More with Fred Potkin and your calls just ahead at 877-333-RICK. And later in the hour, share with us things you've discovered in your own trips to Italy. 877-333-7425 is our number. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking Italian food, and that means Italian culture, if you know what's good for you. And our guest is Fred Plotkin. The fifth edition of Fred's book, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, is just out, and we've got Monique on the line from Haverhill, Massachusetts. Monique, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. 
Um, my question is about truffles. I'm wondering um, if you can tell us when they're in season, which areas are most known for them. And I have not yet tasted one, and I'm curious to know um, what the fuss is all about and what's so wonderful about them. Well, people either love truffles or hate them. The first thing to understand about truffles is, and I would send you first to Piemonte, that when it's a good year for wine, it's a bad year for truffles. Truffles come when there's a lot of rain, so that's not good for wine. But go in a year where it might be a bit rainy and go in October or early November and have them simply prepared tallarin, which are egg noodles, and shave some truffle on top. There are white truffles and there are black truffles. The white truffles are much more prized and expensive. I would start you on black truffles so it doesn't break the bank. And if you like that, then advance to white truffles. It's perfume. And I can tell you that dogs are typically the ones who are sent out to find truffles. Truffles smell, and forgive me for being clinical, very much like the gonadal zone on the human being. And dogs often stick their noses in that place because they're drawn to that particular fragrance. So if that's a smell that pleases, then truffles might as well. Now, Fred, I, I get a feeling that in tourist areas, anytime they put the word truffles or tartufo on the menu, tourists are going to go, yeah, and they're going to order it. And a lot of it's just um, sort of a poor excuse for truffle taste in some kind of truffle oil. What are your uh, warnings in that regard? It's an abomination. Do not get truffle oil ever. Truffle paste is an adequate substitute, but better just to have it once, to have it in a zone where truffles are, are naturally occurring and just freshly shaved on either pasta or scrambled eggs, something very simple. If you're not in Piemonte, Umbria is another good area for truffles, but start with Piemonte. So you want a simple dish in season with the truffle actually grated onto your pasta or whatever? Yes. Okay. Monique, any other thoughts on truffles? Are you going to try one? I, I'd love to. I'm wondering if it's possible to get them in the United States. I know I've heard of people having them, but, you know, when you get them over here, they're not, they're not native to the United States, right? And for what you're paying for it here, you could buy an air ticket to Milan. <laughs> so you know the answer there, Monique. Yes. Okay, thanks for your call. Great, thank you. And Diane's on the phone in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Diane, thanks for your call. Thank you. Fred, I uh, am a chef myself and uh, studied in France when I was in cooking school, but uh, I'm very interested in the cooking schools of Italy. I'm, I've heard about Colte Buono, where Mrs. de' Medici uh, really teaches, and I was wondering if you knew of any schools, particularly in the Piedmont area, because that's the food I love the most. Well, I do, actually. Just in full disclosure, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici and I once wrote a cookbook together, and therefore, I, I happily would support her and recommend her. For Piemonte, there are a few. One of them is actually related to the slow food movement, and it's in the city of Bra. Um, another thing I would have you do is contact what's called GRI, Gruppo Ristoratori Italiani. And they're actually based in New York. And they have a cooking school in Piemonte that's a very fine school for professional chefs. So if indeed you are a professional chef and not an amateur, then I would do that. There's also something based in Chicago called the International Kitchen, and they work with cooking schools throughout Italy. And I would recommend them, theinternationalkitchen.com, as a means of finding a cooking school in the region you want to go to. Thanks so much. Thank you. Diane, before you go, you're um, a chef and, and you appreciate good food and apparently you love Italian food. Can you get a good Italian eating experience in the United States, or has your experience in Italy kind of spoiled it that way? There are some places in the United States, particularly in California, that uh, seem to sort of replicate the Italian experience around San Francisco uh, with very fresh seafood and things of that kind. But I would say that, generally speaking, in the United States, the food does not compare to Italy. And precisely because of what Mr. Plotkin was saying, the ingredients in Italy are everything. It really boils down to that Italian forte of let the flavor of an ingredient shine. The real difference between European food and American food is the quality of ingredients. But you get more. You get bigger portions here. You do, but not as good. <laughs> I think a lot of people, when they go to Italy, they get a small portion. They go, what's going on? And at home, I would have got double this. And that's right. 
But That's I guess right. I guess you got to understand that in Italy it's a, a multi-course affair and you're going to take your time and uh, you really need to um, embrace that sort of style of eating. Absolutely. Diane, thanks for your call. You're welcome. I'm talking with Fred Plotkin, who's written Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, when getting back to that whole idea of uh, American-Italian food, when we think Italian food, we're kind of naive, and it's basically rustic Neapolitan, isn't it? It's rustic Neapolitan. It's really Italian-American food in that when Italian migrants came to various parts of the United States, they were poor. So when they found the bounty in the United States, and I I do want to add, we have wonderful ingredients in America too, but we don't always know how to use them in their best way. But we are a nation blessed with beautiful raw materials, especially vegetables now. And the migrants began to build up recipes, putting in tons of fish and seafood, tons of meat, rivers of cheese, and made it a very heavy cuisine. In Italy, lasagna is not heavy. In Italy, chupin means little soup, and it just has a few little bits of fish in it. In San Francisco, it became chopino and is a bigger seafood stew than bouillabaisse. It Mm. it doesn't represent Italian taste at all. It's delicious, Mm -hmm. but it's not Italian. You know, you hit it on the nail there, though. When I think of Italian food here, Generally, it's a little heavier, and when I think of the same equivalent in Italy, it would be lighter, wouldn't it? Yes. I recently was in the Marche in the town of Macerata, which I highly recommend to anyone going to Italy as one of those unspoiled places that has everything we love about Italy. And they have a lasagna just in that town called Vinci's Grassi, and Vinci's Grassi has about 40 layers of very thin pasta, and it's an exquisite lasagna, but not heavy at all. It's hmm. very delicate. Now, that's in the Marque region, and that is in one of those Marque. regions that people don't really know very well. That would be not fr- to miss. from Rome, sort of north, but on the Adriatic side? It's northeast. Okay. You could take the Via Salaria. The Via Salaria is the road that the ancient Romans built from Ancona, where there was a lot of salt, to Rome to transport salt. So Via Salaria, road okay. of salt. Those of us who love Italian food have to be thankful for Columbus, I would imagine. Well, poor Christopher Columbus is much maligned. Um, He worked for the Spanish crown for Ferdinand and Isabella, and he was sent over. He was actually not even sent to the Americas. He was sent to India, and he took a wrong turn and wound up in what we now call the Americas, and he made four voyages, and I believe that no one in the history of food had more impact on how we eat and what we eat than did Christopher Columbus. He brought livestock to the New World. He brought turkey. He brought tomatoes. He brought potatoes. He brought chocolate and vanilla and other things from the Americas to the Old World. He brought peppers and corn. So think, for example, of Italian food without tomatoes. Think of polenta without corn. Polenta before that was made of millet. Think of peppers that did not exist in Italy. Many beans, zucchini, pumpkin were not there. So all of these traditional Italian dishes are actually made with American ingredients. Wow. And that brings to mind that there's a little market stall in Assisi where you look up and you see the fresco on the ceiling and it celebrates a turkey. And uh, it was 500 years old and apparently it was a big deal in Assisi when they got their first uh, turkey in the market. Well, because it was a bird that provided more meat than did a chicken. Because historically in Italy, Italians don't kill chickens except on very special occasions. There's an expression in Piemonte which says, quando si uccide una gallina, o è morta la gallina, o sta morendo un uomo, which means more or less, if you're killing a chicken, either the chicken is sick or a man is dying. Because the chicken is valuable in providing eggs. And if you kill it, She does not give any more eggs, obviously, so you're eating the meat. That's a sacrifice. Oh, my goodness. So the turkey represented meat. Fred, I like when you say be a culinary geographer. Explain specifically what you mean by that. That actually, I think I coined that term. And I said that Italians are culinary geographers, meaning that they understand that a combination of soil and climate and weather and seasonality means that the cantaloupe that comes from Mantova in Lombardy is just better than cantaloupe from elsewhere, and they agree on that and are willing to pay more for cantaloupe from there. 
They know that tuna or onions that come from Tropea in Calabria are sensational, and they'll pay more for it. Hazelnuts from Alba, basil from a little town called Pra in Liguria makes the best pesto. And on and on, there's a huge list of these foods that Italians agree are best from one town at one time of the year. And that's a culinary geographer. And for the beginner, if you just simply go to the market and see what looks best, that's what you could order at the restaurant that night and you're a culinary geographer? Exactly so. So if you're in Bologna, which is my favorite eating city in in the world, and you happen to notice that there are a lot of beautiful fish from the Adriatic, let's say sole, which have a very brief season, you would say, all right, sole, if I want fish, is what I'm eating at a restaurant tonight because there's a lot of sole in the market. Similarly, if you see artichokes, it means that this is high season for artichokes. So get sole with a side of artichokes. So be flexible and open-minded. Go with the flow. And something else to tie into that would be, I think, the folly of looking for something in your mind that's authentic because in so many cases food is evolving, and it kind of undercuts the whole notion of authentic, doesn't it? You have no idea how many Italian-Americans I meet who are disappointed with food in Italy because they say, it's not like my grandmother's. There is no way to say that something is authentic. Something is of a tradition, is what I say. Hmm. And in even the same town, for example, body where many grandmothers come from, they might make a pasta in a certain way, and have a meatball with it. Traditionally in body, they add lemon zest to the meatballs, and the meatballs are tiny. But sometimes they might add basil or another herb. It doesn't mean that one is authentic and the other is not. It means that there are two ways of doing it, even from one grandmother to the next. So that means for the traveler in Italy trying to enjoy the culture, get away from your preconceived notions and what you thought you were going to order, but that puts you at the mercy of the waiter, Fred. And I find a lot of times I want to just tell the waiter, I'll trust you. Feed me whatever you want to feed me. But does that make it possible that we just get all the stuff that's on their push list? Or do you trust waiters when you just put yourself at their mercy? I tend to size up the waiter and decide if he is really proud of a certain food and knows it's good or feels this is something that we want to move and get rid of. Don't forget, when I go to Italy, I speak Italian. Mm -hmm. I order an Italian I suspect that I'm treated with a little more sense of that I know what I'm doing than would be a visitor finding his or way through a menu in a language they don't know. But I tend not to rely on waiters, would be my advice, but to even go into the kitchen and say, what do you have? What is good? What do you suggest? The chefs know what's good. The chef is too proud to ever push something on you that's not good because it's his reputation or her reputation on the line, and that is something that you can never get back. So I rely on the chefs. A tourist in a, in a non-touristy restaurant, first of all, for sure, go to a non-touristy restaurant, ideally in a non-touristy town, but does the tourist then, are they, is it permissible to actually go back and talk, check out the chef? Well, I always have to wash my hands in the bathroom, and they tend to be oh, nearby. Yeah. There you go. So when I'm going to wash my hands, I'll stop by and I'll say, what's good? <laughs> Cosa c'è di buono? Good line to know. Yeah. Fred, you talk in the book about the culinary blackout. What do you mean by that? I was born in 1956, and I moved to Italy in the early 70s. And that was a period right after 1968 of revolution and throwing away anything relating to older generations. So at that time, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I wanted to know everything I could about food and wine, not for a profession, but just to learn. And my classmates would take me to their homes in Puglia or Valladosta or everywhere in between, and their mothers would teach me things that my fellow students of that age wanted nothing to do with. So I found that 20 years on, when I was in my early 40s, I knew more about Italian food and wine culture than did most people my age because there was that culinary blackout. Only now, in their 50s, are they starting to come back to food as identity, as culture, as something that they can hang on to in a world that's unpredictable. And that's why I'm in the unusual position of teaching Italians their food culture because they missed out on it. Is the slow food movement just a a few odd 
vegetarians who have uh, ridiculously careful ideals, or is it a real force in Italian cuisine? Well, just so you know, I'm one of the 65 original founders of slow food in the United States. So I became a proponent of it early on. Well, I once heard a woman say there's nothing natural about natural childbirth, and I would make a corollary. There's nothing convenient about convenience foods. Mm -hmm. They're terrible for the environment. They don't taste good. And just because you throw something in a microwave doesn't make it convenient. Slow food was a rejection of fast food. It was saying that with the same amount of use of the soil, of ingredients, food preparation time and expense, we can produce pasta, beautiful soups, baked vegetables, things that are really good for us and not have to have a fast food product that is very bad for you, low with fat, sugar, salt, that's devastating for the earth. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring Italian culture through its food. And Fred writes the... The Definitive Guide to Eating Your Way Through Italy with Knowledge and Understanding, and it's out in its fifth edition, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred, I like your notion of the pleasure activist. Can we wrap things up with just uh, explaining to us what do you mean by us travelers becoming pleasure activists? Well, I believe that one of the great gifts that we as humans have received is our five senses of sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. But I would argue that most people don't use 10 or 15% of what we've been given for our senses in that we, we see but we don't really perceive. We get a smell near us but we don't think about it. We taste but we don't savor. We hear but we don't listen. And we touch but we don't really feel. And if we would just permit ourselves to be more human, to use our senses the way we were intended to use them, we would experience so much more. People always say, how do you remember what something tasted like or smelled like? Well, I let my senses really be on full all the time, and I don't analyze. I experience first, and I let the analysis come later. And I would also argue that if you put your five senses to good work all the time, you develop a sixth sense, and that's instinct. And that, to me, is the product of our other five. So I am indeed someone who believes in pleasure activism, not hedonism, but our use of our senses for pleasure and knowledge. Words for a traveler to live by. Fred Plotkin, fredplotkin.com. That's F-R-E-D-P-L-O-T-K-I-N.com. And that tip you just gave right now, if you're interested in maximizing your experience in your travels, that could very well be the best budget tip you could possibly come up with. Fred, you are an inspiration. Happy travels and uh, mille grazie. And to you, and we'll have dinner in Italy one day, won't we? We will. Ciao. Ciao. Allora, sta proprio qua il signor potestà. Your calls about discoveries in Italy are next at 877-333-RICK. Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine. J'habite dans le Languedoc et je voyage avec Rick Steve. This was French for hello, I'm Sabine. I live in the Languedoc in southern France and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je m'appelle Sabine. J'habite dans le Languedoc, dans le sud de la France et je voyage avec Rick Steves. It's no wonder that Italy is such a favorite destination for so many travelers. Every time we visit with Fred Plotkin, I always feel like I come away with some kind of revelation that makes my fondness for Italy and respect for its culture grow even stronger. Right now, let's make time for your calls at 877-333-7425. Tell us what you've discovered in Italy and what sticks with you long after your vacation is over. Maybe we can even inspire each other to the tastiest of adventures. And Tom's on the line in Richmond, Virginia. Tom, thanks for your call. Yes, how are you? Doing well. Got a little discovery in Italy that you like? Yes, uh, we were in uh, Florence. We spent about five days there, my uh, two teenage sons and my wife and I. And after five days in Florence, you can get a little overwhelmed with Renaissance art and uh, church architecture. Especially with kids. Yes, uh, so we decided to spend a couple of days in the country. I had noticed on the Internet a uh, place that is called Agriturismo, a small farm in uh, the mountains of Tuscany, which sounded like a good contrast to all the art. Mm -hmm. We went up to a town called Barga, 
It's about 40 minutes uh, north of Lucca. That's B-A-R-G-A. That's right. Okay. It's in a region called the Garfagnana, which is a river valley and goes right up into the mountains. And I didn't realize this, but the uh, mountains in that area are over 6,000 feet tall. Hmm. So it's a very rocky, alpine, beautiful area. So it's a rugged part of Tuscany. Yes. And Barga sits at this edge of a river valley. It's a uh, hill town, started in the medieval times, and it overlooks this view that is about 180 degrees with huge mountains and uh, river valley and lots of little hill towns in the distance. Hmm. So it's, it's really worth just for the view. But our experience that uh, was unusual was uh, we were staying at this nice little farm called Al Beneficio, which has olive trees and honey uh, production. And um, we were taking little day hikes from there, and there was this tiny little village straight up the hill from there on top of a mountain. And, of course, my boys like a little challenge, so we uh, walked up that way. And um, it was a real switchback little road. It looked like an old Roman road, only about six feet wide, and then it got narrower and narrower. And we were going up through uh, Chestnut Forest. And um, then we come out on top, and there on the wall was a sign for the road that said... uh, Via 92nd uh, Divisione Buffalo. Hmm. My kids thought it was some kind of military base. So we walked further into the town. It was an extremely steep little mountaintop village with some church towers and old narrow streets. We came to a ruined castle, which looked very old, and they climbed around that for a while. And then we found a plaque dedicated to an American soldier from World War II. And his name is John... John R. Fox, I believe is his name. And it uh, turned out that there was a major battle fought there during World War II as part of the Goth line that the uh, Germans had set up to uh, slow down the Americans in their advance up Italy. Wow. That whole valley had been fought over. Our host, uh, Francesca, who is the uh, owner of the little farm, was really hot on history, and she would tell us all the, the history of the area. But we didn't know about this John Fox who had suffered in a battle right above her farm. And what had happened was his division, which is known as the Buffalo Division, because they were uh, Afro-American, were up there on top of this mountain, and the Germans uh, overwhelmed them. And he was their advance artillery locator. Okay. Scout, I guess you'd call him. And he called in the uh, artillery strikes onto his own position, and he was uh, killed during the battle. Mm. But the fact that he successfully brought in the artillery right there and uh, wow. stopped the Germans became a major event. 92nd Buffalo Division. Why would they call black soldiers Buffalo? What's the connection there? Well, my only knowledge of that is comes all the way back from the uh, U.S. Cavalry in the West when they were fighting Indians mostly. And uh, they were known as Buffalo Soldiers way back then. Ah, so okay. I guess that nickname stayed with them. You can learn a little bit of American history traveling your way up uh, Italy, actually. And uh, it turned out that Francesca had a next-door neighbor who was in his 70s, and as a child he uh, was hiding out on that same hillside and watching the advance of uh, both British and American soldiers. Wow, and you got to talk the, to uh, him, and he actually saw the battle. Yeah, he was uh, definitely there during it. We couldn't talk to him because he only spoke Italian, hmm. but we did uh, meet him, and uh, yeah. he was very friendly. All right, Tom, thanks for your tip. Oh, and uh, one thing to uh, remember is John Fox got the highest Medal of Honor, I believe it was, uh, awarded to him by uh, the U.S. Army, but it took uh, 50 years for him to get it. Well, we've come a little way since then, I think, haven't we? Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Okay. Okay, bye now. Mm -hmm. Bye now. Cheryl's on the line in Indianola, Washington. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's nice to be on. I'm really excited to share my uh, discovery in Tuscany. Well, what's your favorite uh, discovery in Tuscany? Well, my husband and I and eight of our friends went to Tuscany for a week, stayed in a farmhouse there, which was really fun. But uh, one day we went to a place called Spinocchia, and it is an old um, a state that goes back as far as the 11th century. There's a tower on the property, and it was in the hands of nobility for quite a few centuries, and then um, 
1925, an aristocrat from Florence bought it, and it's passed down through his family. And what happened is one of the descendants married an American woman, so they had a couple of kids, and now the whole estate is run from the United States, but it's as a nonprofit organization that promotes Tuscan culture, organic agriculture, mm. and it grows a variety of uh, endangered or um, threatened breeds of agricultural animals, including a, a breed of pig called the Cinta Senesi, hmm. which goes all the way back to Roman times. So this is Spanokia, S-P-A-N-N-O-C-C-H-I-A? Yes. Spanokia. And they are in agriturismo, where you can actually stay on the farm like a bed and breakfast in the countryside? You, well, it's not a bed and breakfast. It's actually an educational thing where you can... There are several ways to stay. One is you can do a day visit and do day tours. Another is to do a workshop there. They also promote arts, and so they have week-long uh, workshops for anything from uh, ceramics to painting to Italian cooking to studies of Italian agriculture and uh, cuisine. They have a huge variety of activities there. And how long did you and your friends actually stay there? Well, we actually were there for just one day. That's all the time we okay. had. But we just got a, a small taste of it. It's, it's But people can book place. in for kind of like a cultural boot camp here and have the real experience? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Huh. We had planned ahead and called and said, which night should we come? And they said, oh, come Wednesday night. It's pizza night. And they actually served about 60 people under an outdoor canopy, and they made you know classic thin-crust pizzas in an outdoor pizza oven, sharing wine and talking to people and talking to the couple that manages and runs the property. It's a fascinating historic place. It's just wonderful. You know, it's so interesting when you stumble onto these uh, people who are passionate about some aspect of the local salt-of-the-earth culture. And you're talking about uh, a group of people who run a non-profit in an 11th century uh, fortified hamlet, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And and people can learn more about that by going to their website. I see it's spanokia.org, S-P-A-N-N-O-C-C-H-I-A.org. And it reminds Mm -hmm. me, I was doing my research for my uh, Florence and Tuscany guidebook last summer, and I I visited one of the places that I recommend. It's called Agriturismo Creatiole. And it's just like that. You book in a week at a time, mm-hmm. and they take you truffle hunting. They take you olive harvesting. They teach you how to cook. They'll take you to some remote church to see the Signorelli fresco or whatever. And you're mm-hmm. you're staying with a local family. And it's, it's just a beautiful it, experience. Yeah, it, this is fascinating because um, everyone there speaks English because it's actually run by Italian-American descendants of the Italian count, Cinelli, um, the original family's name was Spinocchi, I think, but uh, the Cinellis bought it. But uh, there are so many facets to this place. We wandered all over and uh, got a tour and a detailed history of how they brought the pigs back from the brink of extinction. There are something like eight of them left, and they started breeding them again as part of only about five places in uh, Italy that are doing that. You know, Italy is really into this sensitivity of uh, traditional agriculture and, and mm-hmm. keeping the certain breeds alive, even though they might not normally make it in the modern crazy world and so on. And it's sort of um, contagious, this this respect for the past and the, the simple life and the good life and uh, this slow food movement and so on. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. And, yeah. and this is a great place to do it and learn about it. And their website is wonderful. There's a okay. tons of information. You know, information. we're going to put it on our website so people can check this out. Uh, again, right. that place is spanokia.org, and, and the place that I was talking about is Creatiole. Thanks for your tip. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Okay, bye now, Cheryl. Bye. And Teresa's on the phone in Missouri City, Texas. Teresa, thanks for your call. Thank you. I just have a gem to share with people. I'm so excited to be able to tell you about this experience that I had in Sicily. Um, My brother really told me about it, and he and his wife had gone to this cooking class. It's located right outside of Palermo. It's called the Halissa Club, H-A-L-I-S-A-C-L-U-B. And it really is an Italian language school. It was established by two friends who were uh, teachers in the public schools there in Palermo. 
And they became really interested in sharing their love of the language with other people. So they developed this school, and it is certified language school, but they had people where they would invite to have dinners with them. And it has evolved over the time that now they offer these cooking classes. And the experience was so unique because their philosophy is to really immerse you in their own home, therefore learning the culture. So it were two women, Angela and Marchetta. They picked us up at our hotel in Palermo and drove us to this small village called uh, Villa Flora, which was about 20 minutes from Palermo. We went to their home, and they discussed about Italian customs and food and beliefs and really just discussed, you know, the food of Sicily and how it's prepared and its meaning behind it. And then we got to work and started cutting all of our vegetables. We made an antipasta and our main course and our second course and desserts. And this little town is near the beach, so it was just this wonderful air, you know. We sat on their patio, and their yard is filled with lemon trees. Mm. And you sit there, cut, bake, you know, whatever, prepare it, and then sit down to a meal and enjoy it. And this is along with their family. So you're just immersed in it, and it was just the most fabulous Um, experience that I think I've ever had, really, in Sicily. Now, Teresa, this is probably Sicilian culture and Sicilian cuisine you're experiencing here. Absolutely. As opposed to Italian, which is quite exciting to check that out. What is the name of the place again? Uh, It's Halissa Club, and you can find it on the web, uh, on the internet. We will put that on our website, as we do for all of these kind of specific places, so people listening to us now who want to actually go to these places can get the details. I've been about five or six times to Italy and Sicily, and having this experience, and it was like an eight-hour experience, you know, was just made the area really come alive for me. And they offer, like I said, language classes that last one week, two weeks, and they take you on excursions of boating uh, to the museum. So all the while you're learning Italian, you know, also, but you're just immersed in just the environment. Now, Teresa, uh, a lot of people are listening, they're hearing Sicily, and they're wondering, are you comfortable in Sicily? You went from Texas right over to Sicily. Yes. (laughs) I grew up thinking that Sicily was just kind of like a dangerous, scary, dirty place. And my grandparents came from Sicily, so that was always my impression. But I adored Palermo and Cefalu and Terramina. Oh, Oh, Cefalu. I love Cefalu. That's Uh, a great sub, too, isn't it? You know, my brother, when he was the first one that went, he came home and said, why have you never gone to Sicily? It's fabulous. And I I was like, I don't know. I just, it was because of my preconceived notions, but that is where I'm going back to. You know, my son studied in Rome, and he would actually organize his uh, classmates and take long weekends down at Cefalu. And they Uh, went down there, and they just loved it. And they would go bike riding in the countryside. And if you like Italy as far south as Rome, I always say go further south because it gets better. You know, it just intensifies. And and Sicily, in so many ways, is like Italy in the extreme. The people are so much more approachable. In fact, I think the further south in Italy, and then, of course, definitely Sicily, the more southern you go, the friendlier that they are warm and inviting, and I just am so sorry that I waited so long to get there. Teresa, you are an inspiration. Thanks so much for your call, and happy travels. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. Karen's on the line in Reading, Massachusetts. You have a thought about road tripping? Oh, all the time. My favorite place is Italy. By car? By car, and when you rent the car, be sure you take the extra insurance. (laughs) That's a good idea. Then you can bring back the car in unrecognizable shambles and just say, sorry. That's right. <laughs> One of our favorite routes is going out to Montalcino. Montalcino. Uh-huh, where the Brunello wine is. Mm. Next, we go to Pienza. Mm-hmm. Parking lot right across the street from where you need to go to get yeah. into the, to and the that's town. that's the, for people who haven't been there, Pienza is the wonderful, like, Renaissance town. Beautifully uh, designed little tiny town with, uh, it's almost like a, a fancy little tile of a town. Beautiful streets and cobbled lanes in that wonderful square. And if you walk all the way through the square and through the rest of the residential area, you come out onto a balcony where you have the absolute most beautiful view of Tuscany. 
Pienza, P-I-E-N-Z-A. Correct. And from there, you get back in the car and head to Montepulciano for lunch. And you're hitting the biggest wine stops of all of Tuscany, <laughs> Montalcino and Montepulciano. This is where you get the uh, famous Tuscan wines. That's right. And then, finally, dinner in Cortona, which is a picture book town. This is the town of where Frances Mays lives, where she did That's Under the right. Tuscan Sun. And, you know, touristy as Cortona is, you're there in the evening, and it's surprisingly quiet in the evening. A lot of tour groups during the middle of the day, but at night, after hours... Lots of competition in the restaurants, great values, and uh, just a cool local scene, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Are you comfortable driving in Italy? Yes, very. A lot of people just, it's a nightmare. What's your trick for driving in Italy? Gosh, I don't Stay know. Stay out of the big cities, for one thing. Right, right. I would never drive in Rome or Florence. You can visit Milan by car and, and come home and find a whole pile of tickets. They'll photograph you when you drive down a road that you're not supposed it's to go. Exactly. My husband and I have gotten very good at recognizing the red sign with the, the cross. Because they'll say it. in perfect Italian, anybody who goes down this street is liable mm-hmm. for a huge fine, and you don't even know it until you get home and they've sent you the bill because they took a photograph of you driving where only taxis and buses are supposed to go. That's correct. Another so. tip when you're in Italy, I think, is uh, I just pay to park if I have to. I just I don't want to drive around, and I, I just want to pay a few bucks and have a safe place to park and not have to walk a long way, and, and uh, that makes life a little easier in an otherwise stressful sort of situation. Karen, thanks for your tips. Thank you. Mother liked a white wine. She'd have a glass or two Almost every single night after her day was through Sancerre, Chardonnay, Chablis, Pinot Grigio Just to take the edge off, just to get the glow You got to take the edge off if you want to get the Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We had help today from Sarah McCormick and from Larry Josephson at the Radio Foundation in New York. You can find links to our guests and a form for getting email invites from Rick to be part of our next recording sessions. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Italy and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Italy's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Italian adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.